What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. From the small towns to the big cities, we bring you the stories that matter. This is, this is, this is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. And today we bring you the story of a man who's been called the greatest athlete of the 20th century. And by the way, if you'd like to support us in all that we do here, visit OurAmericanStories.com and click the donate button. Become a part of all that we're doing. 
We tell the stories of a good and great country each and every day, positive stories, redemptive stories, the kind you don't hear anywhere else. If you'd like to support the work we do and support a show where the American people are the star, again, go to ouramericanstories.com and click on the Donate button. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories, because it's you, the American people, well, that make this country great. And now Greg brings us Sally Jenkins and Steve Shankin to tell us the remarkable story of Jim Thorpe. He's the greatest athlete who ever lived. Uh, he, he's been named the athlete of the century. I think he probably is the greatest athlete ever. He was a two-time gold medalist at the 1912 Olympics in Oslo and uh, came home from those Olympics and played his senior college football season in 1912 in which he really shattered just about every scoring record. He was the greatest halfback in college football history probably for his era. Really, his claim to fame is, is that he's greatest all-around athlete this country ever produced. He ended up at Carlisle the way so many of the kids ended up at Carlisle. He was essentially sent away to boarding school uh, by his parents. Uh, his father was a bootlegger and kind of a, a rowdy Hiram Thorpe. His mother died when he was fairly young, and so his father really shipped him off. Carlisle is in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, uh, which is right near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Carlisle's founded in 1879, just three years after Little Bighorn. There was still a lot of uh, tension and unrest on a lot of the reservations. And so one of the things that the U.S. government and the U.S. Army decided to do was rather than fight Indians, they decided to try to educate them. And so they decided to, to fight a, a, a smaller, more subtle war against American Indians in the name of civilizing them and absorbing them into American society. Carlisle was the brainchild of Richard Henry Pratt, who was a, a tough, gallant U.S. cavalry officer who served on, in Indian Territory, which is now Oklahoma, for about eight years. He actually fought in the Indian Wars. He fought in the Civil War quite gallantly, had two horses shot under, out from underneath him at Chickamauga. He then goes out to Indian Territory, where he basically fights these very difficult, very arduous series of campaigns. Um, General Sherman called Indian, he said Indian fighting is the hardest kind of war. It was a guerrilla war, as you know. It was an insurgency in some respects. It was, it was in difficult terrain. Pratt uh, is affected by these campaigns in, in two ways. He, he, it toughens him. It also, however, it gave him an enormous amount of um, compassion and sympathy for the tribes that he was fighting against. He actually, he was an abolitionist um, and he was a literalist who believed that uh, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence meant what it said. He had a lot of faults, but he also believed in total equality. He did not believe in racial inferiority in, in, in any shape or form, and he really believed that Indians were every inch the equal of, of white men. And so he went to the government, he went to Carl Schurz, he went to um, Ulysses S. Grant, and he said, let me have a school, and let me take the children of some of these combatants, and let me take them back east, and let me show you what I can do with them. Let me show you how I can turn, I can prove that an Indian boy or girl is the equal of a, of a white boy or girl. There are moments when I find him truly inspiring, and there are moments when I go, he was in, in, un, unthinkably cruel. Uh, all I can tell you is that he is a very American, he, he represents what this country was in the 1880s, and so you have to stare very hard at him and un, try to understand who he was, and if you love your country, you have to love your country for its faults and its flaws, and Pratt, to me, is sums up 
some of the mixed feelings we can often have about the history of this country and all of our legacies. Um, they rebel against this experience in a number of ways. And um, one of the ways in which they rebelled was to start playing football and to start proving that they could whip white boys on the football field. And that's where this incredibly inventive Carlisle football program comes from. They began taking this uh, distinctly new American game played by Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, and they began playing it in their own way. It was faster, fleeter, more inventive. They tended to be smaller than these hulking, chop-fed Yale boys. They had to find a different way to win because they couldn't take on these, these Ivy League boys head-to-head, uh, -head, so to speak. They, football in the 1880s and, and early 1890s especially was a, was a dull, brutal game. The game was just unrecognizable. At first there were 25 men on the field at once and it was whittled down eventually to 11. But there weren't many rules and there was no creativity at all. It was two walls of humanity running into each other basically. Every play was the same. So no passing is allowed and every play is a running play. The quarterback either keeps it or hands it to somebody and, they, and then the two sides just ram into each other. And eventually the guy with the ball gets knocked down. But in those days that wasn't even the end of the play because the guy with the ball might be squirming forward underneath the pile and guys would just be punching each other and gouging each other's eyes and there was no 15-yard penalty for roughness or anything like that in those days. As a result, just much more violent. The injuries were much more serious, head and neck injuries and deaths. And in those days in college football, 10 plus kids died every year. In 1907, the big thing that happened then for football fans to know is that passing was finally legalized. And the reason is that people were dying. So many kids died playing football, up to 18 in one year, that colleges started banning football. And there was a huge movement nationally to ban the game. Teddy Roosevelt, as president, was a big football fan, and he wanted to save the game. This is how the NCAA was formed, actually. Colleges got together. He urged the leaders of the elite universities to get together and say, you guys get, you guys better make a plan or this game is gonna be gone. And so they got together and formed this organization and rewrote the rules of football. And, what, and the big change that they made was to allow the forward pass. And the reason they did is because it would make the game spread out a little bit and be a little more creative and, and not these giant walls of humanity, hopefully, and, and fewer injuries. And that was the goal and it, it did work. And Carlisle, Pop Warner, they were some of the first people to realize the potential of it. Really, the first high-profile game where the forward pass made a big difference and just so literally changed the game of football forever was that year, 1907, when Carlisle visits Philadelphia, plays the University of Pennsylvania. as huge underdogs, as always, when you go into a school like that, and they uncorked these passing plays right, I mean, right off the bat. It just blew everybody's mind. I mean, they, they crushed Penn that day. And in those days, when you set your sights on being the best team in the country, that meant it didn't mean playing Alabama and Clemson. It meant playing Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and the University of Pennsylvania. If you look at the list of national champions in college football, those four teams, the big four, as they were called, they have at least the first 30. I don't know what the exact number is. Look it up. So Carlisle's goal was to start playing the big four, of course, on the road. And, and Pratt thought that was at first absurd because how could they possibly compete? And, and of course, when they started playing, 
they were easily beaten by those schools. Of course they would be. They were crushed. They didn't even have a coach when they started out, let alone a field of their own. It was impossible. What they set out to do was impossible, to become the best team in the country, and yet they did. And so they began to play hide the football. They invented the reverse. They invented the forward pass. They invented the trick play. They started running around teams instead of through them. So they were very fleet, very agile, and highly experimental. And they loved playing football that way. They loved putting their own stamp on the game. Carlisle football, every time now you watch a quarterback in a shotgun formation in the NFL, every time you watch the ball go airborne, any time you watch the ball go around end on a reverse, a debt is owed to the Carlisle Indians. Yeah, somehow the, the history books got messed up where Notre Dame had this game where they passed the ball and this is where the forward pass began. I've seen this in books too. And I guess they have such a big fan base. This is what people want to hear, but it's just completely wrong. Anyone who goes back and looks at the box scores and the articles about games knows that years before that, it was Carlisle, in fact, who revolutionized the game with their forward passing, especially in 1907 at the University of Pennsylvania. And not only that, they would run what we would call a no-huddle offense. I mean, this is just... It was devastating, but it was also brand new. They would call their plays at the line of scrimmage, and and the defense just couldn't get set. They couldn't even catch their breath between plays. And so everything that, that makes the game exciting, these guys were doing it 100-plus years ago. Pop Warner comes into the Carlisle story in 1898, and he stays there until about 1913. So with one brief absence, he goes back to Cornell, which was his alma mater, for a couple of seasons. He craved the approval of the Ivies and, and was always sort of chafing at the idea that he was coaching at this, this school that wasn't an Ivy League school. But Pop Warner w was a meeting of minds with his Carlisle players. He, was, he had a, a very inventive mind, and he arrived at this school where these kids wanted to play a different brand of football, and together they create the game that we watch today but even Pop Warner couldn't really control his players to the degree that he wanted to. Uh, coaches weren't allowed to call plays from the sidelines uh, back in those days. Coaches could prepare teams for the game, but then once they sent them onto the field, the players called their own plays. And Warner, in account after account uh, in his own memoirs, talks about his frustration standing there on the sideline and watching the kids, these, these Indian uh, kids run the plays that they wanted to play rather than, th than the plays that he would tell them to play. Uh, he was constantly fighting with his own players. Jim Thorpe was one of the players who frustrated him. Thorpe literally said to Pop Warner one day, Warner was trying to get Thorpe to run up the middle of the field, and he said, Pop, why should I run through him when I can run around him? Uh, Thorpe arrives there uh, early, uh, 1906. He comes in as a, as a, as a woebegone, underweight boy of about 16 years old who has just lost his mother who died in childbirth and his father dies uh, within his first six months at the school. He's effectively orphaned uh, by the age of 16 when he's at Carlisle. Yeah, Thorpe is always just a natural athlete. He spent his childhood outside running around. At first with his young brother, they would do these freeform obstacle course marathons where they would run a few miles, climb trees, swim a river, and Jim was just unbeatable at anything like that right from a young age, even before he played any kind of organized sports. And so when he showed up at Carlisle and he was walking across campus one day 
and saw the, the track team practicing the high jump. And the, the athletes couldn't jump over this bar, which was about six feet high. And Jim was in his overalls and work boots. And he said, hey, let me give it a try. And they kind of laughed at him because who was this skinny kid who wasn't on any team? And Jim wasn't the kind of guy who was going to trash talk you. But he also wasn't going to ever back away from a challenge. But he just jumped over it like it was nothing, picked up his, his stuff and walked away. And it was the next day that the, the coach of the track team happened to be this guy named Pop Warner. who He was also the coach of the football team, too. But he recruited Jim for the track team. But after he joined the track team and did very well there, just basically every, every week he would set a new record for the school in, in running and jumping. Probably my favorite story from the early part of, of his rise as a football player was the tryout scene. It's so cinematic. This is how you would start a movie is that the, the football team was practicing. This was 1907 now, and Carlisle is already a really good team, a top 10 team. And there were top 10 rankings in those days. And they were, and they would play the hardest schedule by far because they played everybody good, and they played all their games, their big games on the road. And so Pop Warner and his, his team are gearing up for another really tough, brutal season of games. And Jim walks onto the football field and says, I want to play football. Pop's got the cigarette dangling out of the corner of his mouth, cursing up a storm. You know, it's just a classic football coach image. And he goes, Jim, get out of here. We don't need you. We don't want you. Basically, you'll die playing football. You're too skinny. He was, he was still really, really thin. And Jim, again, he's not going to talk back to you, but he's not going to take no for an answer. So he just said, he just kept saying, I'm going to play. I want to play. Give me a chance. And Pop eventually said, all right, here's what we'll do. Well, you can, you can help us with a drill. It's called tackling practice. You stand at one goal line with the ball, and everybody will tackle you. And this just makes such a beautiful scene, because if you're a football fan, you could see it. Here's this, this kid standing there at one end. The rest of the team is kind of laughing at him. They, they like him, but they, they, he has no business being out there. And Pop blows his whistle, and they all charge at Jim. And in that moment, that beautiful moment, Jim reveals this combination of speed and agility and power that had never existed in a football player all at once before. He, out, he, he fakes out some guys. He stiff arms some guys. He sees a yard of daylight, and he's just gone. He turns on the sprinter speed, and he's just gone. And, of course, Pop said, all right, that was just, you guys weren't trying. Let's do that again. And, and Jim does the exact same thing again. And so, yeah, of course, now he's, he's on the team. He played five different positions. I mean, the great, one of the reasons why Thorpe is, is, I think, the greatest football player who ever lived is because he was uh, the greatest halfback on the field. He could throw the ball. He was the best defender on the field. He played the equivalent of the cornerback position today. Uh, he was a terrific blocker. Uh, and uh, he, he just was... Uh, really far and away the, the greatest drop kicker um, who ever lived also. And so uh, he, you really never knew where he was going to be on the field. He could do anything and everything, and he did it better than anybody else. And he played both ways on offense and defense. Jim really came into his own in, in 1911 and 1912. Those two seasons were the high point of his, of his career and of Carlisle's career, where they really became just undoubtedly the best team in the country those two seasons. He gained over 2,000 yards rushing each of those years. He personally scored more points than most teams. Because he was, oh, he was their field goal kicker too. I should point that out. 
he was their punter and their place kicker. So he was scoring more than just about every other team in the country just by himself. There's just nobody like him. Like I said, there was no, there was never a player with that combination. You, you know, you're either fast or you're really strong. You just don't see that combination. Some people will remember Bo Jackson and had that, that combination, which you just don't see that combination of speed and agility and power all in one player. And Jim was the original Bo Jackson. He was the original guy who could do anything, and, and he did. Like Bo, he played other sports. He ended up being a professional baseball player, and he could do anything. If you like what you hear, if you love this show, please, by all means, subscribe and share. We're trying to bring people together in this country. And then, by all means, if you're a fan, rate and review what we do. It matters in these matters to hear from you, and it really helps us grow this show. Yeah, there, there are, the stories are legend of, of how many amazing plays that Jim did, Jim made. And they're credible because, you know, these were eyewitness accounts by sports writers, not stuff that someone said at a banquet 50 years later. And so I, went, I spent a lot of time reading articles. It was the closest, there's no ESPN, you know, there's no, there's no highlight reel. So you, you go back and look at articles from people who were there when they would go to Georgetown, Pittsburgh, Syracuse, all, you know, just crisscrossing. They went and played a game against the University of California. They played anywhere. They'll take on anyone. And there was a game that was at Pittsburgh where, and this was another rule change, but in those days, the punt was a live ball, you know, like a kickoff. So it wasn't that someone had to touch the ball. It was just anybody's ball as soon as you punted. And Jim got this idea that he was the punter, of course, because why not? He did everything. That if he kicked it high enough, he could catch it himself. And he and he did it in this game in front of this the whole stadium of players. So it became another one of his incredible, famous plays where he kicked this high, booming punt, sprints down the field, because he's also the fastest guy in, in the sport. And this poor receiver is just kind of standing there, making his arms into a basket, waiting, waiting for the ball to come down. And Jim just leapt over him, caught the ball, and just rambled at that point. There's no one in front of him into the end zone for a touchdown. And it was the kind of thing that he would do. In every game, there was some kind of highlight reel play. That it's, Of course, it's film has, was in its very, very early days, but there's no film at all of the Carlisle team in action, which is such a shame because... We can picture it. Any football fan can picture these kind of plays, but it's just priceless stuff. It would be so cool to to see some of these plays in action. Audience responses to Carlisle are fascinating. I mean, Carlisle went to the Polo Grounds in New York in 1896 to play a YMCA team, and the first big crowd to come out to watch Carlisle play football really expects to see something like a Wild West show. There's a, there was a great deal of coverage of Carlisle by the New York newspapers or the Philadelphia newspapers and the Boston newspapers. Carlisle was a novelty to a lot of these early football audiences. And the audience is somewhat disappointed when this team of neatly shorn boys in sweaters runs out onto the field and they look like, in fact, there's a comment from a young woman sitting in the, uh, in the grandstand at the Polo Grounds in 1895. She's disappointed and she says, why they, look, they don't look any different from our boys. And those first audiences would war whoop when they ran onto the field and make tomahawking motions. And it really, really didn't view them as, as, as people or as students. They viewed them as artifacts almost. 
That changes very quickly. By 1896, Carlisle comes back to the polo grounds, and by then they've really kind of charmed the country with this innovative brand of football that they're trying to play, and they come back to the polo grounds in 1896 to play Yale. And they play Yale an epic game. Um, in 1896, Carlisle did something that no other school had ever done. They scheduled Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and Penn, uh, the fourth Ivy League power, in succession. No one had ever tried to play all four of those teams in the same year, much less in a row in the space of, of four to five weeks. Football was an absolutely lethal game at the time. There were, there were deaths on the field all the time because of dangerous for power formations called the Flying Wedge. It was actually dangerous to try to play these big, massive, hard-hitting teams all in a row. And here was this little plucky boarding school with uh, just a few hundred students uh, between the ages of, of you know, 12 and 25 trying to take on these, these massive national football powers. Well, Carlisle almost beats Princeton and then comes and plays Yale at the Polo Grounds in 1896 and scores a touchdown that would have won the game against Yale. Only it's called back by an official who happened to have gone to Yale. And the next day, the New York World, uh, which was Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, which had a, a, a really great sports section that, that I spent a lot of time uh, reading, they wrote that Carlisle could beat 11 Yale men, but they couldn't beat 11 Yale men and a Yale referee. Well, at that game, the audience becomes really so enchanted by the Carlisle team and what a, what a great, courageous game they play that they are incensed when this touchdown is called back and they boo for several minutes. It incensed the crowd. It incensed every newspaper in New York, which then conducts a long press campaign over the next few weeks, basically singing Carlisle's praises and vaulting them into national prominence. So even though they lost that game, uh, they, they won something in the larger context. It, it really humanized the Carlisle football teams to American readers and American audiences. Pratt understood this. Pratt was at the game and was as infuriated as anybody by this referee's decision. His team, as he's watching the game, he sees that his team, Pratt sees they're about to walk off the field. They're so outraged. He runs, he gets out of his seat and he runs through the grandstand and across the field and he stops him and he says, don't leave the field. You've got to come back onto the field. Don't you understand that if you, if you leave the field, uh, they'll call you quitters and uh, you've got to go back out there and you've got to make a record for your race. You're going to lose this game, but you're going to win something greater if you'll go back out there and, and play like gentlemen. And the team goes back on the field and they do exactly that. And, and the effect is exactly what Pratt predicted. Pratt said, don't you understand that if when they cheap shot you or cheat you, if you retaliate, They'll say, see, that's the savage in them. That's the Indian in them. He said, you've got to overturn all those stereotypes and prove them wrong. And so Carlisle football, in some sense, was really an exercise in eroding stereotypes. Pratt knew that, and so did the players. They were always conscious, highly conscious of the racial stakes in those games. From that game on, that 1896 Yale game on, there's a whole different perception of Carlisle football. Now, when Carlisle starts to win these games, which they do in about 1907, the press and the public turn against them because, as it turns out, the public loves Carlisle as a plucky little underdog, but once Carlisle becomes a dominant football team, it made everybody incredibly nervous. And Jim Thorpe really paid the price for that. Uh, Thorpe played baseball. He, Thorpe was a bolter. Uh, he ran away from school uh, on more than one occasion. He'd get tired of the discipline and the bad meals. And... Uh, he ran away to play semi-pro baseball. Uh, a lot of Ivy League athletes to make some money in the summer 
would go down south and play in the, uh, in the Carolina League under assumed names. Thorpe ran away from Carlisle to do the same. He went down to play some summer league baseball in which you basically made meal money. You, you didn't get rich doing it. It was a way to get out of farm work. He was sick and tired of being farmed out to local farmers and for slave wages. Uh, so he decided to run away and play baseball in Carolina uh, for a couple of summers. He tired of that very quickly, too, because he didn't make a whole lot more money playing baseball than he had working on farms. He returns to Carlisle and plays two more seasons in 1911 and 1912. One of the top teams in, in 1911, you could easily have argued, I would argue that they, they should have been ranked number one at the end of the year. You can look at the records and decide for yourself. I mean, I think it was one of those things where they just played by far the hardest schedule, had the most quality wins. And in 1912, they're going to come back and try one more time. So Jim was on the Olympic team between those in the summer of 1912 and came back for one more year, what would essentially be a senior year, you know. If there had been an NFL and a draft in those days, of course, he, he would have probably left to join the, the NFL. But goes back for one more year. And has another dominant 2,000-yard year. Harvard had decided by this point they'd seen enough of Jim Thorpe and Carlisle and said, you know, we're not going to schedule. Don't bother, don't come this year. You know, we could, we'll play other teams instead. The stories about America's past are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are good in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Again, they are terrific learning experiences and great for the family. Go to hillsdale.edu. And we'd love to hear stories from you. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com. And click on the Your Stories tab. We can't wait to hear them. So Pop and the team were looking around for, for other really big games to play. And they ended up scheduling a game at West Point against Army. And that's just this loaded dripping with symbolism. Obviously, you know, some of these guys, their parents or grandparents would have fought, physically fought against the soldiers' grandparents in the West. And so you could read a lot into the meaning of the game. And the press certainly did. They made it sound like this was basically another war like the wars are about to break out here in New York the players didn't really see it that way they of course wanted to win it was it was a big game for them because they were undefeated going in and Army was a top team they had one of their big great players was Dwight Eisenhower Omar Bradley was also on that team and so it's just a showdown you know a classic showdown if you were making up a movie you would make this up and the audience wouldn't believe it because it's just too perfect Carlisle comes in late in the year, undefeated, to West Point in the fall. And the whole country is watching to see what's going to happen in this game. But Carlisle was just, just a much, much better team and had way too much offense. Dwight Eisenhower was, was looking forward to playing against Thorpe. Eisenhower was a good player. He was, you know, borderline all-American kind of talent. And he was really looking forward to it. In fact, he says, quote, he said, I was thoroughly enjoying the challenge that Jim was presenting. On the football field, there was no one like him in the world. And after the game, another of the Army stars, this guy named Leland DeVore, was asked about Thorpe. And he, his response was, That Indian is the greatest player I have ever stacked up against. He is superhuman, that's all. There's no stopping him. 
He was so obviously the best athlete in the country that, that Pop suggested that Jim join or try out for the Olympic team. In 1912, the Olympics were in Stockholm. And remember, Jim was a track star first before a football star. And so Jim went to an Olympic trial event and did really well, made the team, and sailed across to Sweden to, to join the team. And the, the ship itself is really interesting. Everyone is practicing and running. There was a track on the deck. People are running around the track. There was the, the rifle team, including George Patton, was shooting guns and... Thorpe did something that, that just was way ahead of its time. People didn't get it. He would sit in a chair and visualize the events. People would say, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing the high jump. I'm doing the long jump. And people didn't get it. They thought he was lazy or accused him of it. He was, you know, Michael Jordan would do this and no one thought it was weird. He was meditating. He was visualizing exactly what he was going to do. And when he got to the, the Olympics in Stockholm, he did the events that were considered in those days the, the biggest events at the Olympics. The decathlon especially was the biggest one because it has 10 events and it's, the, it's how you determine who's the best athlete in the world. And the Europeans had this idea that they were really better at those kind of multi-sport events. The Americans, sure, they, they were good at specializing in things, but the Europeans had the best all-around athletes. And, and Jim just went there and completely dominated the pentathlon and decathlon and won, by wide margins, won gold medals in both of those events. And, and as he did everywhere he went, he won over the crowd. He always spent a lot of time hanging out with kids, signing autographs, talking to people super down to earth about, about that kind of thing. There's even a story that when, when the king of Sweden reached up to you know put the gold medal around, around Thorpe's neck, he said, Sir, you're the greatest athlete in the world. And Jim simply said, thanks, King. And that was kind of, that's the most that he would ever say in that kind of a situation. Jim was kind of on top of the, the sports world in, in 1912 as he's leading Carlisle to another great season. And it was near the end of the season when this huge controversy exploded. Some reporters who, who saw him at practice recognized him as a baseball player, as a guy who had played semi-pro baseball over the summers in the South. But the problem was that that made him a paid athlete, and so was he therefore ineligible for the Olympics. And this became a huge controversy, and it's a completely needless and stupid and frankly racist one, because so many Ivy League kids did this and then competed in so-called amateur track or Olympic events with no problem. But with Jim, all of a sudden, it was a problem. that Oh, he's a professional. He shouldn't have been at the Olympics after all. And this broke just at the end of the, the 1912 football season when he was really on top of the world. And now all of a sudden, there's this terrible controversy that he was ineligible for the Olympics and should therefore return his gold medals. And they did. They took... The Olympic Committee, the American Olympic Committee took back, they physically stole, went into his room and stole his gold medals and sent them back to Europe. And the joke was that the people, the athletes that Jim had competed against in Sweden didn't want them. They, they acknowledged that Jim had won them. 
there was an athlete named, named Hugo Weislander from Sweden who had won the silver medal in the decathlon. So now all of a sudden he's eligible for the gold. And his quote was, I don't know what your rules are in regard to amateurism. And apparently Thorpe didn't either. But I do know that we met in honest competition and he beat me fairly and decisively. I didn't win the Olympic decathlon. Jim Thorpe did. It took until the 1980s, but they eventually did acknowledge that they were that they were wrong and couldn't return the medals to Jim, who wasn't living anymore, but did give replica gold medals to his daughters. Thorpe leaves Carlisle to, to play Major League Baseball then. He, he finally leaves Carlisle after this, this final great season of 1912 uh, in the midst of this scandal. And it really leads to the closing of Carlisle's doors. A lot of people had, had been gathering resentment against Carlisle. The student body had turned against their teachers and against Pratt. The Carlisle experiment is really fraying in every way. Uh, Pratt had been forced to resign by Teddy Roosevelt. He's succeeded by uh, some true incompetence. Pratt, whatever you may think of him, ran a tight ship and kept the students decently fed and kept the school in decent condition. It, the, the guys who come after him really could have cared less about any of the, about the students or about the condition of the school. The school really deteriorates. And so the, the school closes its doors finally in 1918 uh, to become a hospital for returning wounded from World War I. If there had been professional football, that would have been the obvious choice. But it simply didn't exist at that point. And he was such a good athlete that even though he wasn't a great baseball player, he was good enough still to make a major league team. And he got signed by, a lot of teams wanted to sign him. He ended up signing with the New York Giants. He did hit 329 in his last year, in 1919, which is very respectable, obviously. But he was never a great ball player. But at, at the same time, finally, uh, football kind of began to form a professional league. It began with just kind of these locally owned teams based mostly in Ohio and they got together to eventually make it official and form a league this is going back to 1922 and so Jim decided to get on get in on that action by that point though he's 30 years old so for a running back that's that's an old man you know at that point but he was still good he could still hold his own out there but the other way he contributed was that the NFL was nothing back then. No one really, you know, baseball was a big deal and track and boxing. No one really knew about the NFL. And so they said, the owners of these teams, mostly businessmen in Ohio, said, we need uh, a celebrity. We need somebody. Who's going to be our first president? This is a good trivia question if you want to ask your friends. Who was the first president of the NFL? And they asked Jim Thorpe to do it because they knew that that name Carry, that meant everything. You know, he was the greatest athlete, the most respected athlete in the country. And so he may have been past his prime as a player, but he contributed off the field as well as the, as the president of the league to get them going and, and give them a lot of credibility as they were starting out. He had, and eventually died of a heart attack at a fairly, fairly young age. I, I feel like in, in the years since, he's sort of been forgotten. I remember as a kid hearing the name and, and associating it with being Native American and a great athlete of some kind, but I didn't know anything more than just those two facts. And so part of the reason I really wanted to write Undefeated was to, to just help tell this story again to, to a new generation of fans to know, you know, especially if they're football fans, to know the, the history of who helped make the game what it is. 
And a special thanks to Steve Shainkin, and he's a three-time National Book Award finalist and the author of Undefeated, Jim Thorpe and the Carlisle Indian School football team. Also a special thanks to Sally Jenkins. She's a veteran sports writer for the Washington Post, had been a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, and wrote The Real All-Americans, the national bestseller about Jim Thorpe. And of course, there's that Burt Lancaster film in 1951 called Jim Thorpe. Watch it if you can. It's, it's actually terrific. One of Burt Lancaster's best performances. And so many stories we tell here. Well, you may have known the name, but you weren't quite sure who the person was. And we walk away with a nice piece of trivia. The first president of the National Football League, Jim Thorpe. And my goodness, what a story about America, American history, about college football too, and how the game was saved by the forward pass. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories Podcast. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.